Hey, and if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have several over here on our resource table. Please grab one of those. If you don't have one at home, please keep it. Let it be our gift to you today. Uh, we also have a number of Gospel of John Scripture journals over there as well. So if you're a note taker, and I hope you are, um, please grab one of those, and you can follow along, and the actual Scripture text is in the journal as well. So we are in John chapter 18 this morning. We have been journeying through this book uh, for quite a while now. We started back, I think, in April of last year is when we began uh, this study of John. Uh, and just not through any strategy of, of, of our own, we have actually managed to wind up uh, entering into the season of Lent as Jesus is being arrested and tortured. And then we will actually wind up at the resurrection on Easter Sunday here in John's gospel. And so uh, that's just a beautiful thing that has happened to work out as we've been working our way through this book. Today, though, we leave uh, what is known as the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and we enter into Jesus's arrest in chapter 18. I'll read our text in just a moment. Uh, but before I was thinking this week, uh, a little over 600 years uh, after the time of Christ, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, was overtaken, conquered, captured by Muslim invaders. And for at least a 400-year period leading up to the end of the first millennium, the city of Jerusalem was held by Muslims. And that was... The case until uh, Pope Urban II, who was the Roman Catholic Pope uh, at the time in 1095, uh, declared that the Christian church, the Roman Catholic church specifically, should basically go to war against the Muslims who held the city of Jerusalem and should take up arms and send military force to the Holy Land and retake the city. Um, and thus began this period in medieval church history known as the period of the Crusades, in which a number of large military campaigns were waged across, across Europe and the Middle East. And all of these campaigns were focused on driving out the heathens, right? Like driving out anybody or destroying anybody who was not a Christian. Um, and the Crusades attracted all kinds of men across Europe. Some who went out of religious fervor, but many who went seeking fame and fortune and glory for themselves uh, in battle. And numerous atrocities were committed in the name of Jesus. It's a really dark time in the history of the church. But underlying all the Crusades was a theology that said that the church was like the new Israel. And much like the Israel of the Old Testament, the church should fight to take control of the promised land, the holy land. In other words, the church should fight at all costs to defend and possess what, in their view, belonged to the Lord. Yet, 
The church greatly misunderstood its position and its calling. While the body of Christ is, in a sense, the new Israel, the new people of God, the kingdom that God has prepared for his body, the church, the kingdom that he's prepared for us is not an earthly kingdom per se, but rather it is a heavenly kingdom that will ultimately come fully on earth as it is in heaven when Christ returns. And unlike the Israel of the Old Testament, neither Jesus nor God the Father at any point in the New Testament insinuate that we are to take up arms to defend what is his because ultimately everything is his, not just some particular place or city, but everything belongs to God. And if he doesn't make it abundantly clear in scripture, I'm just going to remind you, he is more than capable of maintaining what is his. Quite to the contrary, we are to be a people, Paul says in Romans 12, are to seek to live peaceably with all people as far as it depends on us. But it is with this idea of defending Jesus that I was thinking about this this week because it's such a central part of John 18 here in the beginning. And so today we transition from Jesus' teaching in the upper room uh, that then spills out into the night, um, his upper room discourse, into the high priestly prayer, Jesus' longest recorded prayer in John 17, to what is effectively a more narrative-based part of John's gospel, starting here in chapter 18. Today Jesus will be betrayed by Judas, he'll be arrested, but one disciple will stand out in this account for his readiness, you might even say his eagerness, to take up arms and defend his master. So let's read John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The word of the Lord. Now we're missing a little piece of the story here. If you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks... 
Uh, Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room. He washed their feet, uh, and then he began teaching, and then they ventured out into the night. They left the upper room. They headed toward this ridge outside Jerusalem known as the Mount of Olives, and eventually, today, they make their way to this very particular place on the Mount of Olives known famously as the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in the garden that the Gospel of Matthew actually picks up. So would you turn with me to Matthew 26? I want to give us just a little bit of a piece of the story that John does not give us. Matthew 26, and we're going to look at verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons, or taking with him rather, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving again, he went away and he prayed a third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, there's a lot going on there between those two passages. But Peter is the disciple that takes prominence in both of these accounts. We get the sense in the Gospels uh, that Peter, James, and John, the, James and John are the sons of Zebedee, as they're referred to, that, that those guys constituted Jesus' inner circle, that they were the disciples among the twelve who were like the closest to Jesus. And we saw that in the transfiguration scene earlier at the beginning of the service that these are the three that Jesus takes with him onto the mount and, and who get to see him for who he really is, who he reveals his glory to and have this incredible moment of, of, of vision and of hearing God himself saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, which, like... What a significant moment, right? Like, that's, that's like one of those moments in Scripture where it seems like you don't walk away from that moment unchanged. You, you walk away from an experience like that going, man, my life is never going to be the same because of what I have seen and what I have heard. Here in Matthew 26, Jesus takes these same three deeper with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks them to watch and, he, and pray while he kind of goes off on his own and prays. And it's late in the evening at, at this point, and they, they just can't seem to keep their eyes open. But notice in Matthew 26, when Jesus comes back, he finds all three of them sleeping seemingly. Who does he scold? It's Peter. Verse 40 and 41, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says this famous thing. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Who's he talking about there? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about Peter or is he talking about himself? I actually think it's a little of both. I see the garden scene as a scene of temptation for Jesus. You know, one of the interesting things about Jesus is that he is both God and man. It's known as the hypostatic union. That's the big fancy term for it, that he's both God and man. And there's this very particular moment early on in the story of Jesus where he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he experiences temptation from the devil, right? But at no point do we get the sense that that was the only temptation that Jesus would ever experience or that he never experiences temptation in any form ever again. And, and as I read this scene... I see this as a moment in which not only are the disciples being tempted, but, but Jesus is also being tempted. In his prayer, right? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done, which, which on some level insinuates that the thing Jesus wants may not be what the Father wants. Isn't that fascinating? It's a really interesting thing. Theologians have argued about it for centuries, but as we go deeper into this, Jesus comes back, he scolds Peter, he couldn't stay awake for one hour. But who's he talking about? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. It's interesting that Jesus tells Peter to pray that he not enter into temptation, that Peter not enter into temptation. Jesus is both God and man. Uh, we have to be careful, again, to not have this sort of, well, well, he's Jesus view of him. Meaning we have to be careful to recognize that the temptations that Jesus experienced were actually tempting to him, otherwise they wouldn't have been temptations. New Testament says that he was tempted in all the same ways that we have been tempted and yet without sin. The thing that makes Jesus Jesus is not that temptation was easily overcome for him, but that temptation was always overcome for him. At no point does he give in to temptation, including here. He prays, Lord, let this pass. But more importantly, not my will, but yours be done, which, by the way, is something he also tells us to pray, his followers to pray in the Lord's prayer. The spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. That's especially true for Peter, is it not? What does Peter do? Well, well seemingly, he starts to pray after Jesus scolds him, and then he immediately falls back asleep. The temptation here is not like a temptation to sleep. I think the temptation here for Peter is the temptation to not pray. In this dire moment, the three disciples sleep right up until a band of armed men arrive to arrest Jesus. As if... There wasn't enough of a distinction between Jesus and his disciples. You have Christ who perfectly overcomes the temptation of the moment and prays fervently. And you have the disciples who seemingly understand that this is a critical moment and yet they can't seem to keep their eyes open. 
Now, Peter's significant here, not just because he's one of the disciples, but because he is like one of us, right? He has pledged his undying devotion to Christ just a few verses earlier. Matthew uh, 26, um, verses 31 through 35, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Speaking to his disciples, he says, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you. I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. You will all fall away, Jesus says. In the Greek, that's the word skandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal. And it literally means something like to fall into a trap or to step into a snare. Tonight, you will all fall into a trap, Jesus tells his disciples. Peter, who is so confident always, right, so confident in his abilities, declares, these other schmoes may fall away, right? (laughs) No, no, no. But Jesus, I'm with you to the end. I will die for you. I am here. But here's the scandal of the disciples, and especially Peter, he really does believe that Jesus is Messiah. He really is willing to die for Jesus' sake. I mean, he's ready to start chopping off ears at the drop of a hat, right? But what Jesus actually asks him to do in this moment, he can't even stay awake for. Isn't that fascinating? Somebody who's so brash, who's so passionate, who, who like is so willing to say, I will die tonight with you, can't even keep his eyes open when he recognizes like the grief, the seeming like struggle that is that Jesus is experiencing in that moment. Can you not stay awake for one hour? Can you not watch with me for one hour? Peter, who is so passionate You know, following Jesus' action and adventure, even the glory of martyrdom, I will die for you. Peter's like, man, I'm all in. But if what Jesus wants is simply fervent, faithful prayer, suddenly Peter's like a narcoleptic. And I think many of us are more like Peter than we maybe even realize. A couple notes of significance here. First of all, and this should be obvious to us, Jesus does not need Peter to defend him. Jesus does not need Peter to defend him. Now, there's some speculation, I think, that uh, Jesus' disciples maybe on some level thought that Jesus was ultimately going to lead some kind of a revolt against the heathen Roman occupiers of Jerusalem and that he was going to need some kind of an armed force for that, and then afterwards he was going to be set up as the king of Israel. But as we know, that was not Jesus' intention at all. Quite the opposite. The medieval crusaders, by the way, apparently missed the fact that Jesus himself took no steps in his day to remove the occupying heathen Roman invaders from Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't need an army. He's not looking for warriors, at least in the traditional sense. And what Peter misses is that Jesus is in full control of the situation. 
At no point are things happening that are catching Jesus off guard. He knows exactly what is going on, and it's not something we have to guess. John told us Jesus knew exactly what was happening in the moment. And when Peter does strike Malchus, the high priest's servant, when he cuts off his ear, by the way, do you notice the level of detail in the account? Like literally the name of the guy whose ear gets cut off? In that moment, what does Jesus say to Peter? Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What did Jesus pray only moments before in Matthew 26? My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What had Peter done only hours earlier? He had drank the cup that Jesus had given to him, the cup that represented Jesus drinking the cup, the cup that represented Jesus' very blood. And so as the armed band led by Judas approached Jesus, Jesus saw that his prayer had been answered, right? The cup has not passed. The cup is here. Shall I not drink the cup that the Lord has given me? God's will would be done. Peter, as he unsheathed his sword, was taking matters into his own hands. And what he didn't understand was that if he were to somehow defend Jesus or protect Jesus or save Jesus, that he would be, in effect, damning himself. Because it is through Jesus drinking the proverbial cup that Peter would be saved, that you and I are saved. Right? Jesus doesn't need a Savior. He is the Savior. Do you get what's happening here? Jesus is willingly and intentionally going to the cross so that his body will be broken and so that his blood will be spilled because Peter and you and I, we are incapable of staying awake, of resisting all temptation. We are incapable of praying ceaselessly. We are incapable of saving ourselves. The flesh is weak no matter how willing the spirit is. In other words, we are in desperate need of a savior. The irony of this scene is that Jesus doesn't need Peter at all, but Peter has no hope outside of Jesus. The greatest thing that can happen is that he drinks the cup. So secondly, what was Jesus looking for out of his disciples in the garden? What was he looking for if he wasn't looking for soldiers? Well, while Jesus may not need Peter, he wants Peter. He's looking for men who will watch and pray. And yet it's like guys like Peter are saying things like, really, Jesus, wouldn't you rather us like do something? And yet in a moment of such significance, literally the moment that everything is in building to, from the time that the angel came to Mary and said, behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. Like everything has been building to this moment. This moment of such great consequence, Jesus does not give the disciples a task other than prayer. The greatest thing they can do in this moment, the most helpful thing, if you will, that they can do in this moment is pray. 
I think I understand this a little bit. I, I love to cook, and we cook at home all the time, and my older kids love to help, and yet sometimes the things I need help with are not uh, fun things, right? right? I need you to peel potatoes. <sighs> That's not what I want to do, Dad. I need you to stir the roux, right? That takes like 30 minutes, Dad. Right? I need you to set the table. And, and it may not be what you want to do, but it is necessary. In fact, it's critical. Like, we don't eat unless these things get done. We can have such a low view of prayer. It's evidenced by how slow we are to turn to prayer in a moment of challenge or crisis or frustration. The Spirit is willing. I, I would say I believe in prayer. I would say things like, oh, I think there's power in prayer, but the flesh is weak. The temptation to pray, to not pray rather, is so great, isn't it? Like the, the temptation to like turn to myself or to try to fix things myself or to look for other solutions is so great for some reason. God, don't you want me to just do something? This is why in Romans 8, Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. His point is that there was a time when all we could do was be a slave to sin, all we could do was set the mind on the flesh, but now, because Christ has drunk the cup, not only are those who are saved, not, not only are those who have faith saved from death, but we are given the Spirit of God, and for the first time ever, we are free from slavery to the flesh. So if you have been set free, Paul says, don't settle for continuing to set your mind on the flesh. Instead, glory in the sacrifice of Christ and intentionally set your mind on the Spirit. Set your mind on the spiritual realm, the things of God. The things that historically in the church have been referred to as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary. I put those in quotey fingers because they are extraordinary. The ordinary means of grace are the word of God and prayer and the sacraments. The things that are like the primary way throughout church history that God has revealed his truth to the church. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of God, right? God's grace extended to us through these things. But yeah, but don't you want me to do something? Read God's Word. Pray. Like, join together with the body of Christ in Holy Communion and Baptism and experience and see the beauty of who Christ is and what He has done. Here's the reminder as we head into the season of Lent. On Wednesday, Wednesday's Ash Wednesday, we need Jesus on that cross. You need Jesus on that cross. I need Jesus on the cross. Peter needs Jesus on the cross. If Jesus doesn't drink the cup, we have no hope. Here's why a season like Lent is important. Lent's not something that's biblically mandated. It's not something you have to do. But here's the reality of our flesh. This is our flesh that is so weak, right? We can actually forget that we are not entitled to Jesus' forgiveness and good gifts. We can actually come to think we somehow deserve it. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I've helped out some people in my life. I've told people about Jesus, uh, you know, many times. Uh, but if we're not careful... We can become like those people in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I do this in your name? 
Or we, we take this other step where we presume upon his grace. We intentionally choose to sin going, ah, well, he, he's God. He'll forgive me, right? Friends, it's as simple as this. If we are not great sinners who are comically incapable of doing the right things, then the good news is not good news. If my prognosis on my own is not dark and hopeless, then the light of Christ cannot break in and bring true hope. And if you hear me say things like that and think, man, I'm not that bad, then you need to be reminded of your humanity and his divinity. And that's what Lent is all about. It's not some kind of season of personal suffering for your sin. No, Jesus has done that. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. He has suffered. But it is a season to be reminded that you are most definitely not God, and you most definitely cannot save yourself, and that when we come to the resurrection at Easter with that perspective, right, that we desperately need him, we have far more ability to see it for the transcendent, life-altering God glorious event that it actually is, not just another holiday on the calendar, but the single greatest day in human history. If I don't see myself as somebody who needs the cross, then why is the cross good news? So what is Jesus looking for in the garden? He's not looking for heroes. He's the hero, right? He's not looking for strength. He has all the strength. He's in full control. He's looking for disciples, obedient men and women who are apprenticing themselves to the master, not seeking glory for themselves, but humbly submitting themselves to the one who has done what we could never do. I'll leave you with this. When the men come to arrest Jesus, led by Judas, Jesus asked, whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers them, and in the Greek, what he literally says is, I am. And his very words knock them off their feet. Put your sword away, Peter. We're going to be just fine. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, you are truly good. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you most of all for sending your son, Jesus. And as we enter into this remembrance of his suffering, I pray, Lord, that through your spirit, that you will awaken us anew to the beauty of Christ, to the extraordinary nature of his coming and his sacrifice, and also to the fact that we are people who outside of him have no life and no future. God, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, I pray that we will be awakened with a joy and an enthusiasm for the gospel that maybe we haven't had ever in our lives. God, that you would breed within us such a sense of awe 
that our days would literally be different, that our interactions with other people would literally be different, that we would become filled with joy and peace and the fruit of your spirit as we seek to give over more and more control of our lives to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would breed within us a fervor to encounter you in our daily lives through these ordinary means of prayer and the study of your word, coming to your table, experiencing the beauty of baptism, this incredible picture of what you have done through Christ. And even today, as we come to your table in a moment, Lord, would you just give us a sense of wonder? Make us children. Help us to approach this not as just some ritual, not just something we do because it's Sunday, but as an incredible privilege that we are invited into through the death and resurrection of Christ. And give us such an abiding sense of gratitude, Father, that, that we're moved emotionally. Father, help us when we struggle, just like Peter, to stay awake, to watch, and to pray. And yet, help us to recognize that those of us who are your disciples, Father, you have called us to such a task. In our daily lives, in our world today, give us eyes to see those around us as people in need of your grace. And give us hearts that desire to love others in the way that you have loved us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.